you have your Bibles, why don't we turn together to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, this morning as we continue our study through Luke together. And if you do need a Bible, you can slip up your hand. We have a few to hand to you if you want to follow along with us. And this morning, we're actually going to pick up right where we left off in Luke 23 there in verse 26. And we're going to, Lord willing, make our way down to verse 43. Uh, But since it's kind of a lengthier section, again, rather than read the whole portion, I'm just going to read uh, for kind of a foundation for our study here, verse 26 down through verse 34. And then we'll pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. And if you're turned there with me, would you stand together with me out of respect for the word of God? Luke 23, beginning in verse 26, says regarding Jesus, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will they do in the dry? And there were also Two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and one the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And Lord, we ask as we open the word of God this morning that you would help us to be able to continue to just in an attitude of worship now, just have a heart that's submitted, that's sensitive, that Lord is ready to hear what it is you want to say to us personally as we've come to this place of worship this morning. We're here to worship you, Lord, and as we've prayed and sang and and fellowshiped, we want this to be just as much an act of worship as we say, speak, Lord. And give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Lord, prepare us, take away the distractions in our hearts and minds, and we ask that you would bless your word by your spirit's ministry and speak personally to each one of us this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I know words have an incredible power uh, in their ability to have an impact in our lives. And if you were to ponder for a moment, what is probably one of the most powerful words in the human language, I think certainly way up towards the top would have to be the word forgive. The word forgive, I think, probably has to be, when you really consider it, one of the most powerful words that exist in our human language. In fact, the definition of the word forgive, if it helps expand it in your mind, is translated to pardon, to give up resentment against, or the desire to punish. And forgiveness really is honestly a liberating thing. It is one of the most liberating things in the human soul. 
to experience forgiveness for ourselves is one of the most liberating experiences any human being can have. I remember to this day, July 12th, 1992, as I was praying a sinner's prayer and finally in that place in my life where I was choosing to make the decision to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior for my sins and to turn my heart over to Him as the Lord of my life, I remember like it was yesterday the incredible experience, real as it was, as I asked Jesus to save me. It was like a weight of a backpack full of bricks that I had unconsciously carried around my whole life, just the guilt of sin that weighs upon a human conscience. And it was like the Lord was just taking that off of my shoulders. And it was the most liberating experience I have ever uh, experienced in my entire life. And even the times when we continue to fail and stumble, to experience His forgiveness when we make a mistake and we go to the Lord and we repent and, and ask the Lord's cleansing and forgiveness in those you know, regular ways. Just, it's, it's so liberating to experience God's forgiveness, to know that, that He is pardoned, to know that He's released us from any sense of guilt. So to experience it is incredible, but also it is a liberating thing to extend forgiveness to other people as well. Uh, and we've all had things happen in our lives and on occasion we find ourselves in the place where we are called, where we are have to confront ourselves the opportunity to extend forgiveness to someone else. In the same way experiencing it is liberating, it is a liberating thing when we extend forgiveness and we finally extend that to someone else, how that just liberates us from maybe resentment or anger or hurt or bitterness that can really just keep us in bondage in our soul if we haven't done so yet. And let me just say, forgiveness is not possible apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. To experience it and to extend it, the cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary. And we shall see that, I think, in our text as we move through these things this morning. Remember the background of where we pick up in verse 26. Jesus is in the last hours now of his life, literally. In the past 24 hours up to this point, we've seen Jesus has been kept up without sleep. He has undergone six different trials, illegal trials for that matter, three religious trials, three civil trials at which he was falsely accused, he was interrogated, he was beaten and abused on multiple occasions. He has been put through the scourging process, which is a process uh, that the Romans uh, would exercise to basically just really severely chastise and punish a criminal to weaken them as well before they would crucify them where they would tie their arms to a post, the back would be stretched out, taunt, and then they would, with a cat of nine tails, leather straps embedded with usually bone or lead or glass, they would whip down on the back and then snap it back and just literally rip off the flesh of the victim. So an incredibly painful uh, scourging process at this point as well, remember Pilate, who traditionally released one prisoner during the Passover season, at this point in our passage, we saw he's been trying to release Jesus back to the Jews because he senses in his own conscience the innocence of Jesus. And this is, it's, it's confronting and it's really terrorizing his own conscience that he knows Jesus as an innocent man. There was no fault in him and he's trying to just get Jesus 
off of his hands. He wants to be released from the obligation of having to do what's right and righteous. So he's trying to turn Jesus back over. However, remember, the people, as we saw as we left off last week, started shouting, no, crucify him crucify him and the shouts are now coming from the crowd if you look with me in verse 23 there it says that people were insistent demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and the voices of these men prevailed and of the chief priests so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested that Jesus would be crucified and therefore verse 25 he released Jesus excuse me, released to them the one they requested who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So at this point, Pilate now finally, he just compromises, he caves under the pressure and he gives the people their desire and the guilty sinful man Barabbas who had been convicted of rebellion and of murder, this individual is now released, and he probably was very likely the one who was scheduled as a criminal to be crucified that day. And he now, as the guilty one, is now released and gets to go free. And instead we see here Jesus, who is innocent and faultless, the sinless one, instead, possibly in the place of Barabbas, he now takes that role and ends up being the one put to death through the crucifixion process. Again, remember Isaiah 53, and we'll reference this a few times through our study this morning, 700 years prior to this time, predicted regarding the Messiah's ministry, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, for he was cut off, from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And that is exactly in fulfillment what we will see take place with Jesus now as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the final Passover Lamb, who will take away the sins of the world. And as the result of that prophecy, he will fulfill it through his death in the crucifixion process that we see him undergoing here. Look with me back again in verse 26. It says, Now as they led Jesus away, he's been sentenced to crucifixion, they laid hold, it says, of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So at this point, Jesus, we find him now starting his journey through the city to the place of his crucifixion site. And as he is on that journey, we're informed that he is doing what was typical on that day. He's now carrying across the back of his neck and shoulders the horizontal beam out to the place of the site of crucifixion where it then would be attached to the vertical beam and he would be raised to be crucified. And this was a common practice that they would make the criminal, the one being sentenced to death, carry their own horizontal beam out to the site through the city. It was to indicate publicly their guilt. It was to shame them before the society. John's Gospel, chapter 19, tells us that Jesus began and started out carrying his own cross. But apparently it seems he is so weakened because of everything that he has endured thus far and the abuse and the exhaustion of being kept all night physically that he literally crumbles under the load and is unable to where the soldiers become frustrated it seems and verse 26 tells us 
that then at a certain point they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, who was coming in from the country, and on him they laid the cross of Jesus that he might bear it after Jesus. So Simon from Cyrene, an area today we know as Libya, uh, had a Jewish colony, and it tells us he's coming in from the country to Jerusalem as this happens, so no doubt he's probably coming, a life dream from far away, he's able to pull together, scrape up the funds to go to Jerusalem to actually personally celebrate the Passover. And as he is coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, all of a sudden this guy here finds himself sort of just caught into the drama. And he's just dragged into the whole thing and he is pulled right in to what's going on in these events. And by Roman law, a soldier could impress upon any person by the edict of the Roman Empire, the service of carrying things for a soldier. And this is what we see happening with Simon now, is Jesus is struggling under the load of that wooden beam. Simon is noticed. It says they laid hold of him, and they now force him to begin to carry Jesus' cross for him. And he finds himself in this very unpleasant process, understand, in this extremely unpleasant process of carrying the horizontal beam that no doubt is bloodied already at this point from Jesus' beatings and scourging and abuse that he has gone through. And like the guilty criminal himself, he's now carrying this crossbeam through the city. And you have to wonder, Simon's a human being just like you and I, he didn't get to read the rest of the chapter. He doesn't know the story. He's living it in the moment. This is just happening to him circumstantially. You have to wonder what his initial thoughts were. I mean, what, what were the feelings and thoughts going through this guy's mind as he doesn't know all the details? He's thinking, I, I can't believe this. I finally make it here to Jerusalem. Finally, I get to celebrate. And, and now, I mean, I, and how humiliated. I'm carrying this bloodied crossbeam for this criminal who's about to undergo capital punishment. And yet then, can you imagine later on, down the road, as Simon realized, honestly, what he actually had the privilege of doing, of actually carrying the cross beam for Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world and the Son of God, and the incredible honor he felt later on down the road. In fact, some commentators taking notice of Mark 15 and Romans 16 and some details there uh, seem to think it's a very possible reality that it's indicated that Simon becomes a very prominent believer in the early church, and it's very likely in relation to what this guy experienced. But by way of application for us, please notice that what was an extremely unpleasant experience for this man actually ends up being the doorway that God used in his life for him to personally encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was in his life an extremely, extremely unpleasant thing to have to be subjected to and to go through, that sovereignly also was the doorway that God used in his life for him to encounter Jesus in a personal way as a man. And you know what? 
Perhaps some of you here this morning, that's the exact same way that you came to Jesus, that maybe God used. I've talked to many where their testimony includes somehow how God allowed them to go through something very difficult. It was at the bottom of the barrel or it was at a very hard time in their life that they finally, their pride was broken and their priorities were different and their perspectives began to change. And that ended up being the doorway where God allowed them to personally encounter Jesus in a special way. And you know what? Any unpleasant experience on this earth is well worth the privilege and wonderful experience of meeting Jesus personally as Savior and Lord. And Simon here finds himself in this place as they're transitioning. Verse 27 says, As they're going, a great multitude of the people followed him, and women also who mourned and lamented for him. So as the crowd is progressing along through the streets, out to the site of crucifixion, we read there's a big multitude, many of whom obviously hated Jesus and they wanted Jesus to be put to death, as well as the fact clearly there were some in that crowd, many who loved Jesus, and they were grieved by the horrible things that he was undergoing. Luke tells us here that there were a group of women who were mourning and lamenting over what Jesus was being subjected to. Verse 28 says, But Jesus, hearing this mourning and lamenting for him, turned and he said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs which never bore, and breasts which never nurse. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Now take notice what's happening here, again, because it shows us insight into the heart of Jesus and what our Lord is like. Here is Jesus, would you agree with me, at one of the most difficult hours in his life personally. This is one of the hardest moments in his life. His suffering is intense, pressure is upon him. He's at one of the most difficult hours in his life, and yet his thoughts are not inwardly focused. At this moment, he again is lovingly more interested in the welfare of other people than he is himself. Even in the most difficult hour of his life, the love of Jesus, the selflessness of his character and his nature, that at his hardest hour, he still was looking to others, more concerned about them. He says in verse 28, as he hears them weeping over what he's enduring, he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But we for yourselves and for your children. In other words, Jesus is saying, even though I'm suffering, don't be concerned about me and what I'm undergoing and what I'm suffering through. Instead, he says, really, I am and you should be concerned and weeping for yourselves and for your own children because of what you are about to suffer and to endure soon. And as Jesus was saying these things, he was referring to what he knew was ahead for Jerusalem and its inhabitants as a result of their rejection of him as the Savior and the Messiah that God had sent to him. And Jesus had spoken about this and predicted this earlier. Remember back in his triumphal entry as he came into Jerusalem to present himself according to prophecy on the exact day that Daniel 9 said he would, that as he presented himself openly to the people of Israel as God's Savior and the Messiah for them. Remember it tells us in Luke chapter 19 that he began to weep to convulse over the city as he looked at the spiritual condition of the people in their rejection of him. And Jesus said these words in Luke 19, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that would make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you 
when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, Jesus added, because you did not know the time of your visitation. He was weeping because they didn't realize, listen, you are so blinded right now to the reality that God is trying to visit you personally in a way like you have never experienced the visitation of God in your life before and you're ignoring it and you're missing it and you're rejecting myself as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And Jesus' heart was so broken over this, he begins weeping and he saw what their rejection would even ultimately lead to the time in 70 A.D., where the Romans would come in and literally lay siege to Jerusalem and conditions would become so bad and so desperate inside the city of Jerusalem with sickness and starvation that the people we know historically would even resort to cannibalism in their efforts of survival. And that's why you see Jesus here in verse 29 saying these things, the days are coming in which they will actually say, blessed are the barren. Now, we all know, typically in any culture, especially in that ancient culture there to be barren was considered a curse would never be considered a blessing to not be able to bear children but what jesus is indicating is the suffering and misery of those days would be so severe people would actually begin to say you know what no it is actually a blessing to be barren instead because the misery of this time of suffering is so bad and the conditions were so miserable that's why he says, verse 30, they will actually begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, again, cover us. The idea, again, is out of desperation, just wanting to die to escape the suffering of the conditions of that hour because of how bad things would become. Painful death would actually be sought after and preferred rather than experiencing and living through the suffering of those times. And keep in mind, this dreadful suffering that the people of Jerusalem would go through was in direct connection to what? Their rejection of Jesus. That they are saying, wanting to escape life and just to die instead, fall on us, cover us, the mountains just kill us, anything to escape the suffering. That was in direct connection to their rejection of Jesus. What's very interesting, if you're a note taker, if you want to put in Revelation chapter 6, because... It's interesting, those same cries we see in the Bible will also be expressed one day later in the future by those who've rejected Jesus and will enter into the dreadful time of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 says, The first six seals are opened of God's judgment of the inhabitants who are left upon this earth, the Christ-rejecting world, and those who did not choose to embrace Jesus Christ, who will be left behind when the Lord returns, and as they are here during the tribulation, enduring the utter chaos on this world of a Christ-rejecting people and the cataclysmic events that are happening and the judgments of famine and pestilence and sickness like never before, an economic collapse and out-of-control violence and earthquakes and cataclysmic events in nature like never before. It tells us in Revelation chapter 6 that the kings of the earth and great men and rich men commanders and mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains and said, listen to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne 
and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Listen, point being, it is never, ever a trivial thing to exercise your will to reject Jesus Christ. That is not a trivial matter. Because that will always, always, always lead to weeping and regret and to painful, painful suffering. It leads to painful suffering in this life as somebody rejects Jesus Christ and chooses not to follow him, but instead to live in their sin, to live in their self-governed ways. And it always leads to making mistakes and living in the darkness and having regrets. It always leads to painful suffering and regrets in this life. And ultimately, if somebody dies in that place of rejecting Jesus, uh, they will have regret and suffering eternally in the lake of fire. And see, Jesus has come in his love to spare us from that, to spare us from that rejection and from those things. Look, verse 31, Jesus also said, for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now, again, he's saying this in relation to his sadness of their rejection of him. And he kind of uses some picturesque language here. Think of it. Green wood is wood that typically is alive. It's life, wood that has moisture. It still has life in it. Dry wood would be dead wood typically because it's been cut off. And in essence, I think what you have Jesus seeming to say here is if they are rejecting me and treating me like this while I am alive and present right among them, then he's saying, what will ultimately happen in the years ahead after I'm dead and my living presence is removed from this earth? John says it this way in John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 regarding Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And Jesus here seeing the incredible regret and damage that will happen long term of their regret turns and speaks to them about it. Look at verse 32. It then tells us, and there were also two others, criminals, led with Jesus to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there, Luke says, they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So now we begin to get from Luke here the record of the actual historical events of Jesus' crucifixion. And again, we'll notice how much of what happened happened exactly as God prophesied hundreds of years in advance that these events and activities would. Notice the site of Jesus' crucifixion, we're told, is Calvary, which in the Latin literally means skull. And it is interesting because to this day there in Israel still, there's a place called Gordon's Calvary, which many believe is the crucifixion site of Jesus Christ. And when you look at the rock face there at Gordon's Calvary, you can clearly see in the rock face what appears to look exactly like the face of a skull. And having stood there, I can tell you it, it's overwhelming to stand there. You know, I always had the privilege to be on the trip in Israel and I'm going through the trip and you're getting to see different sites and, and it's just incredible to have a sense of tangibleness, to realize your faith, it's, it's historic, it's authentic. And, and, I'm, and I'm waiting, I'm watching people on different occasions just have a real, you know, personal experience and we beat a particular site and I was doing fine until we got to this site and I looked at that skull-like face in the rock there realizing what had took place and my eternal redemption all my sins were settled there and and i just disintegrated 
And I just started weeping because I realized, oh my goodness, right there. Every stupid, selfish, wrong thing I did right there, it was all taken care of. And I am free. And I'm going to heaven. And, and, and all because of what happened right there. Incredible, incredible place to be. And here Jesus at Calvary about to be crucified. And take note of a few things regarding his crucifixion. First of all, notice that Jesus was not crucified alone. The Bible tells us he actually was crucified, it says, between two criminals. Again, Isaiah 53 prophesied that the Messiah or Savior, it says, would be numbered with the transgressors. And we see how Jesus was marched along out to his site of crucifixion to be put to death with two guilty criminals who, unlike Jesus, were actually being put to death for due reason for their crimes to experience the penalty for breaking the law. Interesting to me that the Holy Spirit, though he could have, the Holy Spirit, notice, does not identify the names of these two criminals. We have lots of names in the Bible, but the Holy Spirit doesn't identify these two criminals. I think potentially that's because it's a picture of you and me. Because the truth of the matter is, uh, if we're honest, we can all identify with these criminals. Because what are they? They're lawbreakers. And if we're real and honest about our own lives, truthfully, so is every one of us. We may not be guilty of violating civil law in our culture and in our society, but truly every single one of us in this room is all guilty of breaking God's laws morally, breaking God's laws spiritually in various ways. We've all committed our fair share of crimes against God. Violations in our own life, things we've thought that we know we shouldn't have thought, things that we have said that we know we shouldn't have said, things that we have done that we know we shouldn't have done. We're, we're all lawbreakers. We're all guilty of many, many crimes against God. Romans 3 says all the world is guilty before God. All the world. There's no difference. We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's one thing every breathing soul in this room this morning shares. We may not share everything, but we share that. We are guilty sinners before a holy God on this planet. Every one of us. We may say, well, this guy's way worse than I am. It doesn't matter. You make one mistake, you're a sinner. In God's estimation, a sinner is a sinner. All have the same dilemma. And the Bible says there's no difference among us. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of our sin is death. In other words, the payment, wages, what we deserve, that's what you get paid, what we deserve for our sins that we all commit is death. Ezekiel 18 says the soul that sins shall surely die. The Bible teaches from the Garden of Eden, right from the very beginning of the Bible, it teaches us that God said that sin would do two things. It would bring death and that sin has to be punished. It must be. That's just and that's right. So that begs the question, And how does a God of love, but also who is a holy and a just God, as a judge, how does God satisfy the problem in relation to sinful mankind whom he loves, but yet are all guilty lawbreakers before his holy and righteous throne that deserve death and we deserve punishment? The answer is simply this, is that God in his loving wisdom allows someone else to take our punishment to take the punishment for our sin that we deserve and that must be punished. He lets someone else step into our place and take the punishment for our crime so that we can be liberated and go free. And that's exactly here why we read regarding Jesus in these verses, there they crucified him. 
Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ died for our sins. By God's design, Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, not for his. He was crucified and punished for our sins as a substitute. Again, crucifixion, please understand, was a form of torture and capital punishment that the Romans perfected. In fact, it was designed to be a slow death with the maximum pain and suffering possible. It was intended to be the most disgraceful and cruel method of execution that is absolutely possible. And throughout history, it is still looked upon as probably the most excruciating and cruel method of execution. Jesus would have been thrown to the ground when he got to the site there. They would have driven iron spikes through the wrist area. They would have then put the feet together and drove an iron spike through that area as well. And then at that point would have attached him to the vertical beam and raised up his body so that left the weight of his body hanging upon those spikes. In fact, just to give you a little bit of insight, I want to read to you actually a, a portion of research that was done back in the 80s by the uh, Journal of uh, American Medical Association. They actually did research from a medical perspective what it would be like for a person to experience the crucifixion process. Uh, and I want to just read you a little bit of what they describe from a medical perspective. It's actually quite interesting. It says, The scourging prior to crucifixion, of course, served to weaken the condemned man. When the victim was thrown to the ground on his back in preparation for transfixion in his hands, the scourging wounds would likely become torn open against the contaminated dirt and wood. With arms outstretched but not taunt, the wrists were then nailed to the patibulum. It has been shown that the ligaments and the bones of the wrist can support the weight of a body hanging from them, but the palms cannot. According to the, the iron spikes probably were driven between the radius and the carpals, the two, to, the two bones in your arm there, which kind of form a hook, is where they would actually put the spike through. Furthermore, the driven nail would crush or sever the rather large sensory motor median nerve. The stimulated nerve would produce excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. It goes on to give more detail. It says, The major effect of crucifixion beyond the excruciating pain was the marked interference with normal respiration, particularly exhalation. The weight of the body pulling down on the outstretched arms and shoulders would tend to fix the intercostal muscles in an inhalation state and thereby passive exhalation. In other words, typically a person died by asphyxia. In other words, they're unable to get the carbon dioxide out of their system because as the body is hanging on the spikes and the feet and the arms, the body is crunched over and to breathe in is one thing, but then to be able to exhale, you actually have to push up on the spikes to allow yourself to get the carbon dioxide out of your system, which makes it very interesting that Jesus seven times spoke from the cross, which meant he in an excruciating way had to push against those spikes to be able to say something and to speak forth. One of the other statements says, death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating. Therefore, that's where that word comes from, excruciating, the word crucifixion, if you notice is in there. Again, this is about a, a 10-page article, very, very interesting, but just gives us an idea of the painful torment and the excruciating suffering Jesus was actually going through. Why? Listen, because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he took it so that you wouldn't have to. And so that I wouldn't have to. Well, as Jesus is there, verse 34 tells us, 
dying, hanging on the cross, he then spoke saying, notice, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So as Jesus is undergoing this excruciating experience, traumatic and painful suffering and ordeal physically, again, the love in his heart does what? The love in his heart prompts his attention toward those he's actually dying for. And amidst all this, we find that Jesus utters the first of his seven statements we know that were made from the cross. The first one being, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How fitting of a statement is that on the lips of Jesus? And can I also say, probably how different of a statement the Roman soldiers were usually used to hearing from someone who was being crucified. I'm sure they heard much different statements typically when criminals were dying in that excruciating way. And here Jesus speaks forth, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Again, Isaiah 53 says, He bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. Notice, despite all Jesus' enduring, his first and greatest concern was the Father showing mercy to people. As Jesus endures all these things, he realized even the horrific acts committed towards him, the grievous crimes and the mistreatment, all those horrible acts that the people were guilty of, they were all being done as a result of people just being ignorant and being blind and living in the dark. And he recognizes this as they're living in darkness. It's why they're making these hurtful, wrong choices. And amazingly, rather than, hard for my mind to wrap around, rather than in his justified anger, being spiteful towards them or wanting to have revenge in his heart towards them because of the hurt they caused him. Instead, what's he doing? He's actually praying for his enemies. He's actually asking for God's best for those who treated him the worst. This is amazing. What an incredible demonstration and indication of how much love and grace and mercy and forgiveness there is in the heart of Jesus Christ for you and I as people, even in our greatest, greatest, most grievous errors. He is still longing to extend his forgiveness to us despite how guilty we are. And for personal application this morning, can I please say to you, perhaps you're here today and you are wrestling with accepting and believing the Lord's forgiveness for you in relation to something in your life. Would you look at Jesus here? He is not just willing to forgive you. He's actually wanting to forgive you. He's not just reluctantly, oh, all right, I'll forgive you. I mean, he wants to forgive you. He's desirous. The Bible tells us regarding God, he's ready to pardon. And listen, you may be here this morning and, and we all have our skeletons in our closet. We all have the things that we've done in our past, the deep, dark things that we have such regret over, the stain in our soul that we just wrestle with and sometimes we struggle over how can God possibly forgive me for what I've done? And, and that, that grates on our conscience. Listen, look at Jesus here. There is nothing you've done that he does not want to forgive you for and that he would not forgive you for. You have to believe by faith. Put aside your reason. It doesn't make reasonable sense. It's not logical. It's called grace. It's loving. You have to believe it. Receive, accept the Lord's forgiveness for your life. Be liberated from that guilt 
on your conscience that Jesus wants to take away. Here he's interceding. And again, the Bible tells us this is even one of his present ministries. Hebrews 7 and Acts chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 8 tell us this is what Jesus is still doing to this day. Resurrected at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us still regarding our failures and mistakes. Take notice on the other side as well, Jesus is setting an example here showing us as his followers who call ourselves Christians, he's showing us an example really of what is to transpire when hurtful, painful things happen to us as well in this life as they obviously did to him. And we all know people can do some really cruel things. People can do some really rotten, horrific things to us and to one another. And yet we see the heart of Jesus for us here when something horrific, hurtful, painful, wrong has happened to us. And I know some things are traumatic. Yet, the heart of Jesus by His Spirit living in us is that we would have a willingness through His help and His Spirit's grace to lovingly extend forgiveness, to release, to pardon, to let it go. And remember, oftentimes people are doing what they're doing because they are blind. They're living in darkness. And those are the people who desperately need God. And you know one of the clearest ways they might see God? Is through your forgiveness extended to them that will blow their mind. That will blow their mind. Colossians chapter 3 says, If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Unconditionally, continually, freely extending forgiveness. It liberates you. It demonstrates the love of God to others. Verse 34 says that they were then dividing his garments and casting lots. That is, they're gambling for his garments of clothes. And Isaiah 53 also prophesied that would happen. Verse 35 then says, and the people stood, notice, looking on as he's being crucified. Now that's a statement of the historical narrative there. They're standing looking at Jesus suffering and dying. However, though that's just a statement in historical narrative, that truly also is a powerful and a profound statement if you consider what it's telling us. That people at that day, as Jesus is suffering and dying on the cross, it says people were looking on. And can I just say this morning, that is exactly what God intends for people to do in relation to Jesus Christ and him crucified. That the heart of God, his desire is that everybody would look at Jesus being crucified. And the reason why is that is the most profound demonstration of love in human history ever exhibited on this planet. And that is actually God's clearest way possible to reveal his love for humanity. You'll notice in the Bible, the crucifixion of Jesus is always the focal point that God purposely points us to, to understand clearly his love. It's not circumstances that we're going through in life, because circumstances can make us question the love of God. It's not the situation you're in right now. It's not your daily experiences. It's not the things that have happened to you in your life, because that will very much confuse you. But God says, this is how you will know and can always know. Look at the cross. Because then despite what's going on in your life, you can still, that is clear, yes, God loves me tremendously. Again, 1 John 3.16, listen, says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life 
for us. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 John 4 says the same thing. In this the love of God was manifested, revealed, that God sent His only begotten Son. That's how God says, I want you to see my love. Look at the cross. Because when you truly look to the cross of Jesus Christ, it speaks powerfully of the incredible love of God that he has for you. It says, but even as Jesus is dying, notice the rulers, they sneered, verse 35, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, which was basically like a, a sedative, a painkiller, which the Gospels tell us he refused. In verse 37, and saying to him again in mockery, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So as Jesus is dying upon the cross and his love for us, again, he's being sneered, he's being mocked at. Listen, if you would, here to their sarcastic mockery, their disrespectful taunts in these verses. They're, they're in essence saying, some powerful savior you are. Some powerful savior you saved others, but now look at you. I mean, come on, if you're the Christ, if you're the chosen of God, if indeed you're the king, then why don't you prove it? Save yourself. See, what they failed to recognize is Jesus would never save himself because then he couldn't save us. His sole intention was to give himself so that we could be saved. It wasn't that he couldn't save himself. He wouldn't save himself so that he was able to save you and I as a result of what he was doing for us. Verse 38 says, The inscription written there, the placard, over his head in letters, notice, of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, said, This is the king of the Jews. Interesting, the inscription written in all the three major languages of that day, the language of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, because why? God wanted the whole world to know of the love of God and what he was doing for them through his son, Jesus Christ. First John 2 says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And God wanted the whole world to know. Sadly, what Jesus did was the whole, for the whole world, but many people personally never realized it for their own lives. They never personalized John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And they never put it, for God so loved me. And, and, and it, we all need to come to that place where we personalize what Jesus did for the world, he did for me. And we need to believe it and embrace it for ourselves. And here, the placard hangs over Jesus' head. Look at verse 39. It says, Then one of the criminals who were there hanged beside him began to blaspheme, saying, If you are the Christ, notice he now begins to blaspheme the same way, save yourself and us. But the other criminal answering, verse 40, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Please look here now of how the power of the love of Jesus Christ demonstrated through the crucifixion of Jesus is now beginning to actually have an effect upon a person's life in a very personal way. As the one criminal is mocking one sinful man, he's hard-heartedly ridiculing Jesus to his death. Another very sinful man, just like the other, at this point begins to realize the truth of the matter and his heart begins to soften. And he begins to be humbled by his mortality and the reality of what's taking place. And notice what he realizes. He realizes his own personal sinfulness. He says, what are you doing? 
Don't you fear God? Don't you realize this man? We're guilty. We deserve to die. He realized his own personal guilt and the punishment he rightly deserved. At the same time, he also realized who Jesus was and no doubt what he was doing. And his heart now begins to soften over the love of God demonstrated through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he says, what are you doing? We're dying justly. At this point, verse 42, he then turns to Jesus, look, and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now here you have portrayed one of the most beautiful spiritual conversions in the Bible. You have this man who was guilty of a life of sin. A life of sin. Ultimately, at this point, he comes to a place of humility and he reaches out to Jesus as Savior. And at this moment, God brings him to the place where he's humbled and he sincerely realizes the guilt and the punishment he deserves. And sincerely, the only thing he can do, recognizing his mortality and that apparently he's going to live after death, he comes to that conclusion finally and he reaches out to Jesus and he turns to him and he says to him, Lord, remember me. Again, in simple faith alone, he turns his heart towards Jesus. And that's all it was, simple faith alone. In his own heart language, it wasn't special words. Again, it wasn't some, you got to say special words, a particular sinner's prayer. It was his own heart language. God saw the sincerity of the faith in his heart and in his own words, with believing faith, he submits himself to Jesus. He surrenders to his lordship. He exercises his personal belief and he asks Jesus, in essence, to forgive his guilt and to accept him into the kingdom of God when he died, that he would be forever with him. And look at verse 43, the culminating verse. Jesus, in response, said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, seeing the faith in his heart, as he turns towards Jesus in personal belief, and Jesus offers him, notice, complete assurance that he is forgiven and that he will be together in the kingdom of God with Jesus at the moment of his death that he had been accepted. Please notice verse 43, what Jesus does not say in response to this dying criminal upon the cross when he asks for his soul to be accepted into eternal life. Jesus does not say to him when he says, remember me, boy, you know what? I'd really like to, but we're not able to get down and water baptize you. If we could water baptize you, then, you know, then maybe I could take you into the kingdom, but sorry, we can't, we can't water baptize you so you can't come to heaven. He doesn't say, you know what, maybe if you could attend church a few times and demonstrate to me that you're doing some good works, then I'd let you into heaven. Or if you get down and you give enough money to the church, or you get down and you, and you do some good things and you read your Bible, then I'll let you... None of that, right? Jesus doesn't say any of that. This guy couldn't do anything but one thing. He turned his heart and he believed. He believed. That was all he could do. He could do nothing to contribute. And see, that's the reality. The Bible says we are saved by grace, through faith, that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. God's plan. This is demonstrated here. Jesus did say to him, assuredly, you will be with me in eternal paradise. It was an assured thing. The beauty and simplicity of the salvation experience portrayed here. And listen, that's exactly what Jesus wants to transpire for every breathing soul on this planet. What a picture here. You have two men equally, right? 
equally guilty before God, equally sinful. One man remains hardened in his sin and he rejects Jesus to his dying breath and he enters into eternal damnation. Another man, equally guilty of sin, believes and reaches out to Jesus Christ and he enters into eternal paradise with God forever and ever because in faith he turned his heart to Jesus and he accepted him as the Savior and the Lord of his life. Listen, as long as someone is still breathing, there is opportunity for their soul to be converted if they turn to Jesus. There is still opportunity available. Yet, listen to me. And I don't know the state of any person's soul in this room. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm shooting for the deathbed conversion. Because I want to live like hell and enjoy the best I can now. Listen. I wouldn't gamble that. I wouldn't run the risk of delay because just because this man experienced a deathbed conversion, you don't have control over the moment of your last breath and when you die. You're being awfully risky with that attitude and a little cavalier before God. The Bible warns delaying is very, very dangerous. 2 Corinthians 6 says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You don't want to run the risk of missing because then it's eternally sealed forever. The Bible says, listen, when you hear God's voice, and that's how I heard it in my life, God says, now. Because you may not ever hear it that clear again. There's no guarantee. When you hear God's voice, whether it's to accept Jesus and salvation, that you should forgive someone else, that you should, whatever it is, God says, now, right now, be responsive. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it conveys your loving truth to our hearts and ministers to us the things that you want us to hear. Lord, I'm thankful that you love us enough to reach out to us and to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, Lord, anyone here this morning in any way that needs to be responsive to you, that you would allow them to do that in this day and in this hour. Lord, maybe it's the choice to forgive someone and they need your help and grace to extend that same forgiveness. Lord, maybe there's one, two, a few in this room who are not truly born again and this day they understand, they realize and they are ready to receive you as Savior and Lord. I pray, Lord, you'd help them by your Spirit's grace to exercise the faith to ask you in this hour right now to save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's